good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. I hope you're all having a great time today, especially seeing as this episode is being released on the first day of December. So it's a new month where new things will definitely happen, whether they are good or bad, who's to say? So I'm going to pick up right where we left off, just as I said last week, where we would pick up with Troy and his friends, Chad, Jason, and Zeke, of course, his three friends, and his dad, who are hanging out in Troy's kitchen after playing some basketball, presumably on like the same day that school just ended. It seems a lot like we're supposed to infer that it's happening on the same day. It's probably not long. Well, we know for sure it's not long after that. And they're, you know, talking about basketball and they're all sweaty. Like, oh yeah, we're going to win the championship. And since Troy's dad is is curious in how Troy's friends are doing, he asks them, so how's the job hunt coming, boys? And of course, that was the big topic of scene one besides the song, What Time Is It? Was that everyone wants to get a job. And they're all like, hmm, not going well. And Zeke, Zeke says, the big zero, which I think is a brilliant line. Troy's phone rings. And it's the instrumental track for Get Your Head in the Game, which leads to a long series of questions. But there are many things in High School Musical, the entire trilogy, that are worthy of being analyzed. But I don't think this is one of them. I think this is definitely worth glossing over. And guess who's on the phone? It's Mr. Fulton, who the audience doesn't know yet at this point, offering Troy a job. And so Mr. Fulton's like, oh, yeah, we always have a... uh, a student work program here at Lava Springs, and the audience can barely hear it, and it's very muffled. And I assume the first time anyone watches this, you barely notice those small details like uh, the sound of Mr. Fulton's voice and saying things like Lava Springs, because that means nothing to the audience at this point. And that's the kind of thing you really only notice after multiple listens. And before Troy even accepts the job, he starts talking about Gabriella and to trying to get them both working there together. Because, you know, that was the other big thing about the first scene was Troy was like, oh, yeah, as long as we're together, you and me, everything's going to be all right. So now that he has his chance to get a job, he wants Gabriella to be working at the same spot naturally. And Troy, who had walked off a second ago to, you know, finish up his conversation with Mr. Fulton, runs back into the kitchen to his friends and his dad screaming, yes, yes. And they're like, what's up? And he's like, oh, nothing, nothing. If you didn't want to tell them, maybe don't scream yes in their faces and then be shocked that they're curious about what you're so happy about. But they, they drop the topic. They drop the topic. Dad starts dribbling the basketball in the kitchen. And Troy's mom comes in asking them all to help her carry in the groceries. And scene. Next scene. Well, actually, kind of in the transition to scenes, it's very interesting because this, this movie is a lot more movie-like than than musical one in that you know i talked a lot about how musical one is very much like a stage performance in in many ways and one of the ways musical two kind of ventures away from that a little bit and is more like a movie is how they play around with sound audio and how the audio from the next scene starts playing before the before the scene on the screen actually switches one example is actually already happened in the scene where Kelsey is closing Gabriella's locker because she, you know, started walking away without closing it. And before we switch from seeing Kelsey to seeing Troy and Gabrielle, we can already hear Troy being like, we can listen to movies, download music, that situation. And very similar thing happens here where we see Troy's mom in the kitchen holding some, some grocery bags. 
And we still see her while we hear Ryan and Sharpay's car radio as they're driving to Lava Springs saying something like, hot, hot summer, or whatever it says. And they're driving, you know, listening to their really bad music in Sharpay's pink car, driving to the country club that we are about to see for the very first time. And Sharpay's like, it's good to be home. With all these people who do exactly as I asked them to. Normal home things. And we meet Charles, who's very unimportant, holding the uh, dog bag thingy, the carrier sort of thing, with Boy, who's a, a, another new character. It's a dog named Boy, spelled B-O-I. And now we see Mr. Fulton's face for the first time, being all being all nice and kind to Sharpay. Which, when Sharpay's like, please find some shade for my car. He says, even if we have a, even if we have to plant a tree. Because his paycheck and survival depends on pleasing Sharpay and all the other members of the club as well. But specifically Sharpay because her parents are kind of, you know, owners and important. So right away, we start to get a gauge of this relationship between Sharpay and Mr. Fulton. And how Sharpay is constantly pulling strings to get him to do exactly what she wants and how it isn't very difficult for her at all. And the first thing, pretty much, that she starts talking to him about is the flyers for the Midsummer Night's Talent Show. As I've talked about before, pretty much every DCOM has some has some sort of big event that characterizes the movie that happens at the end that we're kind of building up towards. High School Musical 2, that's the Midsummer Night's Talent Show. In Like, if you had to tick a box, that's what it is. But it really isn't as essential to the story as most other of these big events would be in DCOMs. But anyway, Sharpay starts asking him right away about the flyers for the talent show. And Sharpay says something in the vein of like, oh, we should limit member auditions to 30 seconds this year. Amateurs are very draining. <gasps> I Maybe I'll come back to this later. We never see anything about auditions for this talent show. And that tap dancer at the end of that sock puppet lady, like, how did they get in if they had to audition? I don't, whatever. Maybe they decided to just scrap the idea of auditions altogether because it was just too exhausting. They didn't feel like it. So like, ah, whatever. Everyone gets in if they want. It's just a talent show for the country club. And then we learn about the Star Dazzle Award, which Sharpay has won five years in a row, which means she's either extremely talented or Mr. Fulton only gives it to her to make her happy. And she asks before she runs off with Ryan to their, their poolside chases. The staffing matter we discussed? Done. With discretion. And as they walk off, we see Ryan is picking up the like one of the old Star Dazzle Awards and like fantasizing about winning it. Like, oh stop, oh stop. It's kind of, you know, foreshadowing a character arc, which I'm very excited to see in the near future. Now we meet Sharpay's friends, who seem to have just been standing there near the pool. Throughout the entire school year, just waiting for her to walk back in and say, Sharpay! And in this very brief moment leading into Fabulous, where we also see Javier, who's a, a lifeguard who's been promoted, I guess, from last year. There's a bunch of dialogue that I've never caught of Sharpay talking really fast to Javier. And here's what she says. Emma, Jackie, Leia, east of me. Oh, and you'll be a prince to angle or chases on the hour as the sun moves. Forgive me if when I was six years old, I understood and heard none of that. So first of all, She's introducing her other three friends who we never met before. Emma, Jackie, Leah, or Leah. I wrote L-E-A and I never know how it's pronounced. East of me. Like, oh yeah, those people standing to my east? That's them. Very pretentious. 
Oh, and you'll be a prince to angle our chaises on the hour as the sun moves. Wouldn't it, it would seem probably more practical to move the umbrella around and not the chairs that have people sitting on them, but whatever. But Javier, that's not his job anymore. That's not his job anymore. Because thanks to the kind words from your mother, Sharpay, I have been promoted. But I'm going to tell the new lifeguard exactly how you like things. Which is Gabriella, which we don't know yet. So Sharpay lies down on her on her pool chair. And her minions ask her, So Sharpay, they're all sitting like on the edge of the chair right next to her. Like, So Sharpay, what's the theme of the talent show this summer? And Sharpay decides the theme is redemption. Because it was a trying year where the drama department was invaded by outsiders. This doesn't... Does it bother me? It wouldn't bother me as much if she actually followed through with it. But like this, oh, the theme is redemption. Like that whole thing never comes up again. That would have been a cool thing, I think, to focus on a little more. They, they kind of honestly did that in um, not High School Musical at all. But Descendants 3 with Audrey coming back and being the new villain after, you know mal drugged ben and changed the course of audrey's life for the worst it would have been interesting maybe to at least touch on that a little stronger in high school musical 2 this redemption thing for the villain but honestly if huma huma nuku nuku apua is your big redemption strategy like it's probably never going to work out for you in the first place but ryan's like chill sharpay chill we're let's just relax we're in luxury by the pool basically what could be better than better than this and the thing that kicks off fabulous is when like the food person comes to Sharpay with a beverage and she's like, more ice? Cue, cue the piano. This song is almost universally adored. It's overrated though, in my opinion. Extremely overrated. And definitely not the uh, the essential Sharpay song at all. Because that's I Want It All is the song that best characterizes Sharpay. And it's a thousand times better than Fabulous. I'm not going to dump on anyone for liking it. I don't dislike the song. I just think it maybe gets a little bit too much hype. And it's also very cool with Fabulous to have a, a non-diegetic Sharpay and Ryan song because we didn't have one of those in the first movie. The first movie, everything Sharpay and Ryan did was like a stage performance, what I've been looking for, and Bob to the Top were the only two. Besides, you know, Stick to the Status Quo, which they were kind of a part of, but that wasn't really a, a Sharpay and Ryan song. And now we have one, the two of them, focused on the two of them, it's a non-diegetic. Very cool. Also very cool to do that kind of right off the bat. So there's a soft piano intro, right? Out with the old and in with the new. And Ryan is playing piano in the pool. Very large Elton John vibes. I think that was extremely intentional. But it, and a lot of people pointed this out. Also, it's not very hard to notice that you have the one Ryan sitting in the pool playing piano and the other Ryan, who's obviously the same person, sitting on the beach chair thing next to Sharpay and they kind of cut back and forth from one to the other and I was like whoa how's he in two places at once one thing that does definitely irk me a little bit about this song when they go iced tea imported from England lifeguards imported from Spain very questionable to talk about imported people and people imported from places then at the end of the verse of course you know where she goes you go do what does this mean what does this mean I was thinking and I think the best I can come up with is that this ambiguous, you know, oh, what are you sending off these people to do? The, your employees just, oh, go do something. Just act busy. Is meant to highlight how most work is mundane and largely unimportant. And the chorus starts. We got Sharpay and Ryan and the three friends, Emma, Jackie, and Leah, flying on the chaises, doing leg dances, fab, less bigger and better and best. 
And then, and then Sharpay in the next verse, you know what she does? She starts bossing them around, her friends. So this isn't even just a superiority over my employees complex. It's a superiority over everyone, her brother and her friends. Of being like fast Shima, Jimmy Choo flip flops and so on. The, the the fundamental difference between Sharpay and Ryan really starts to shine through at that moment when Sharpay starts bossing him and the other three girls around. Sharpay's, you know, oligarch mentality of bossing people around. Whereas Ryan is nice confrontational, going with the flow for the time being. And I think it's it's interesting to look at the, that big personality difference between the twins through the lens of their respective relationships with their parents. More on that later. Second chorus now. Another great example of high school musical songwriters being able to change up the songs as they go so that it doesn't grow stale after the first minute and a half or two minutes, which is a big problem in pop music, by having Ryan sing the second chorus. And it's way better than the first chorus because Lucas Graybill is the best singer in the cast by a long shot. And it goes on, right? And there's um, the, the bridge, kind of, where it goes, fabulous pool, fabulous splash, that whole sequence. You got Sharpay sitting atop the pink piano in the pool, right? And you got... Emma, Jackie, and Leah kind of, you know, walking around the piano a little bit. But then you've also got all these background people of all ages sitting on the edge of the pool, swaying back and forth. Left, right, left, right. I guarantee these people were not hired. Okay, maybe maybe they were they were compensated somewhat. But these are these, they seem like randos who just happen to be present and walking by. Like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? Wow. And some of them are really getting into it. Like, there's one guy who I think I I can picture him. I think he was like on the leftish side of the screen. And he was really, you know, getting into the movements. And then there are also some genuinely extremely young kids there. Like, not like joking around like, oh, Molly Gray looks like she's eight. Like actual eight-year-olds who really look like they don't want to be there or they have no idea what's going in, kind of just going back and forth, back and forth. There's something a little bit off-putting about it, to be totally honest. And then, you know, in the final chorus, there's this brief, brief on, on the screen. They show that employee Sharpay was bossing around before, meticulously adding ice cubes to the drink. And then the next part where it goes, this won't do, that's a bore. That's insulting, right? Those magazines that her friends and Ryan are showing her. The insulting one, I tried to see what it said, what was on it, just to see if, you know, can figure stuff out. I couldn't really tell what the name of the magazine is. It felt like, honestly, like one of those eye doctor tests. Like, what are these letters? And I think it said like E-A-R-I-L-O-S-O, Irreloso. But you can barely see anything on it anyway. And I would guess that's not what the magazine said, but that's what it looks like to me. One high point musically of this song is pretty much right at the end, when I need fabulous, right after the magazine stuff. And Ashley Tisdale does it very well. And I think they actually put some, like maybe they double track the voice, she does, does it twice. It sounds nice. It sounds nice. Then Troy walks in, right? Troy walks in. For his first day at work, in the job, Sharpay gets all excited. I like what I see. I like it a lot. And Troy, as he's, you know, slow motion, looking around the fancy country club, mouths, whoa. About how fancy everything is, right? Then Troy waves hi to Gabriella, who's starting her first lifeguarding shift, presumably her first lifeguarding shift. And then Chad and Zeke and Jason and a bunch of other people walk in behind Troy. So Sharpay in the span of, you know, five seconds is like, hey, Troy's here, and realizes, wait, everyone else is here too. 
and Chad is wearing a shirt that says, warning, do not read this shirt. And then Sharpay. Sharp, okay, here's what she does when she gets so surprised that Gabriella and Chad and company are all there too, not just Troy. What she does is she walks over to the pool and falls in. Whether it's on purpose or not, I still have no idea. I think it's I think it's meant to be accidental, but she just she walks just just walks over to the edge of the pool. She was standing next to her chair, three steps over to the edge of the pool, standing at the edge of the pool, then very intentionally starts leaning backwards and flailing her arms and screaming. I I love the way very small detail. Ryan instinctively, as her pace starts falling in, reaches to her, try and grab her as she's falling in. But obviously, like, he's a couple steps away and it's too late. And once he realizes it's too late, he jumps back to make it obvious that he didn't push her. And this is an instinct that a lot of people have when they, you know, drop something. For example, like, a lot of times, I don't know, say um, you're holding a glass of water or something. And I don't know, you drop the glass of water. And instead of reaching down to catch it, a lot of times you'll, like, jump backwards and put your hands in the air like, wasn't me. I didn't drop it on purpose. So then Gabriella, who's had this job for like 30 seconds, dives in to do her lifeguarding job and save Sharpay, who's not actually drowning, but she is screaming really loudly. And Sharpay's like, what are you doing here? And Gabriella's like, I'm the new lifeguard. And I think it's kind of interesting that right off the bat, they showed Gabriella being very competent at her job and saving someone. So that we're not asking ourselves throughout the movie, like, what are Gabriella's, like, is she qualified to lifeguard? Do we know this? Like, the fact that we know right away that she definitely is good at lifeguarding, you know, I think that's a big subconscious weight off our shoulders. I really do. And Troy starts being like, wait, Sharpay, you a member here? She's like, ah, and everyone's like, whoa, blah, 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 crazy, right? A lot of people are confused about the timeline here, like the audience I'm talking about. How do they get jobs so quickly? Because this is still very early in the summer, because this was like the same day. Everyone was like, welcome back, Sharpay and Ryan. So happy to see you again. We can probably assume this is the opening day that Sharpay and Ryan would be there on the first day that it opens for the summer. Living in Arizona, sorry, not Arizona, New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, I would assume this country club might be open more than just during the summer since, you know, it's warm there all the time. Um, maybe it is open all year round, but Sharpay and Ryan's parents don't let them come until summer vacation because they have to focus on school and stuff that would be possible maybe i don't know or maybe they do just open in the summer maybe they just open in the summer i don't know i don't know all things to consider all things to consider and either way troy and everyone else gets jobs to have jobs like right away and this timeline is is much looser in this movie than musical one by a lot and Musical 3 is even looser. And because it's so much more allegorical than Musical 1 also, and that the allegory of like workforce competition is so much more central to this movie than any allegory was in the first one. Like, there were allegories in the first one, of course, as I mentioned many times, but in the second one, it's much more central. The timeline can be looser. And the fact that Troy getting hired immediately is a direct request of the rich girl and everyone else getting hired immediately is because Troy wanted it in the allegorical setting. I know I'm saying that word a lot, but it makes sense with that context. 
So now Sharpay is yelling at Mr. Fulton, throwing papers around, and she's still wet from falling in the pool, which is a very nice continuity because a lot of times shows, movies, anything will have the tendency to dry up or clean up anyone who got wet or dirty within, within you know, in the next scene. And they don't do it here. Very nice. And Sharpay is like, why didn't you warn me about never hiring everyone else? And Mr. Fulton, you know, takes off his glasses and kind of, you know, it's like, well, I did discuss the matter with the Lava Springs board. Which is Sharpay and Ryan's parents, basically. So she storms into the yoga room where her mom is. This is the first time you meet her, by the way, Sharpay's mom. Sharpay's mom is very entertaining, but we don't like her because she's rich. Anyway, Sharpay storms into the yoga room and steps over people doing, you know, downward dog and such. And Ryan's following behind her, kind of just vibing, going with the flow. Sharpay yells at, yells at her mom. And mom's like, Chill, Sharpay. Think of your future kitten. So, uh, honest, I don't understand the, the relationship between Sharpay considering her future endeavors and also having these people hired. I don't know. I do not see the relationship. And Ryan doesn't mind, of course. Ryan starts doing yoga with her. And the really funny line that I actually tend to forget about a lot at this point, when mom says, tell Pumpkin if she worries too much, she'll get frown lines. And he's like, I told her twice. I love that they don't fall into the trap here, the writers. Peter Brasacchini specifically of, cause I think he's, you know, like the, the writer of the movie of only including dialogue that moves the plot forward because small throwaway lines like this, that don't matter really add to the experience and really kind of do make it feel more realistic too, because you know, in real life, people don't always only say things that contribute to the plot of life. So Sharpay goes right back to Mr. Fulton says, I want them out, but he can't fire them because Sharpay's mom thinks that it's good that her classmates are hired, which is a little questionable that Sharpay's mom would just love the idea of Sharpay's classmates working for her. I don't know. A little weird. A little weird. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, you get what I'm saying. And here's where Mr. Fulton, like the only part where I start to get a little bit confused about what he's up to, because Sharpay basically saying, don't mention that backstabbing yogini to me, which is a very funny line I would have noticed when I was six, because I also didn't know what a yogini was, where she says, if you can't fire them, make them want to quit. And I'm confused here at this point, because obviously Sharpay's mom has more seniority than Sharpay does. And the big looming threat really with Sharpay throughout the movie is if, if I don't like what you're doing, Mr. Fulton, I can get you fired. But if Sharpay's parents don't want to have Mr. Fulton fired. It's not just like Sharpay and go, yep, fire him. They're like blindly, okay. Because they will st- still have a say like, chill, Mr. Fulton is doing his job well and they won't fire him. But I think maybe it is c- kind of more rational than I think because he wants to listen to Sharpay and keep her satisfied because A, if she really wanted to get him fired, she still you know could pull the weight at least. And he'd much rather keep her satisfied and do exactly what she says because otherwise she'll be constantly making his life a living hell, which she kind of already does anyway, but he doesn't want it to be any worse. So now we're about to see uh, everyone, all the wildcats, about to get to work. And they're in the kitchen, you know, pairing and stuff. And Zeke and Chad and Troy are chatting, you know, ready to start out their job. And Zeke is super excited to study under Chef Michael and also to spend time with Sharpay because she's like, uh, you know, if you really get to know her, judge on... No, Zeke, no. Sharpay is the villain. But he's still super excited to, you know, get to study under some great chef, I guess. Chef Michael. 
which is something that's definitely worth you know being excited about if he wants to go to culinary school or something. That's definitely a great reference to have is Chef Michael, who works at a country club. Now Mr. Fulton comes in, and he starts confirming assignments with everyone, drawing Chad, our waiters, and when needed, caddies, which does make sense because you don't need very much experience to be a waiter or a caddy, as far as I can tell. I mean, maybe if you have some golf knowledge, it definitely helps out in caddying, but as far as I can tell, the bare minimum is just carry the golf clubs around in the bag. Then he goes over to Taylor. I heard you're efficient, so she's handling member activities with a clipboard, which leads to Taylor carrying around a clipboard constantly throughout the entire movie. And you know, to be totally honest, we also see Taylor later on kind of running the like the kids' club, which is a lot of responsibility for a high schooler to run a kids' club. But honestly, you have a summer job if it's paid decently well, which I think this one is. And your only job is to handle member activities and like, you know, handle schedules and sign up lists. Yeah, sure. Fine by me. Then he goes over to Kelsey, who's having the time of her life eating some like a slice of cake or something or a fruit cup. I don't remember what it was. And her job is just playing piano at lunchtime and cocktail hour. And Mr. Fulton's like, which means mood music, not new music. And Kelsey seems kind of put off by this like what what do you mean i gotta play music that isn't my favorite like i know of course you know working is never good selling your labor is never good but as far as it goes kelsey this isn't that bad like honestly personally for me that's kind of the the ideal job to have if you could call having a job ideal is just you know sitting in a dining hall or a restaurant or whatever just playing the piano. No one has. No one comes to talk to me. No one makes any requests. I just got you. Just vibing and mood music. Fine. I'll just you know, chill with the atmosphere. Do 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 do. Whatever. Easy. Easy. Easy money. And now it's Martha's turn to get instructions from Fulton, and her job is chopping, cutting, preparing plates, which seems like the writers just kind of throwing something in, like oh, what we have Martha do? How about uh? Chopping and cutting and preparing plates. All right, sounds good. And funny joke, man, Mr. Fulton is like, do complete the summer with the same amount of digits I assume you currently possess. And then Chad, right before Mr. Fulton leaves, asks Mr. Fulton if they can draw straws to see who will be waiting on Sharpay. And Mr. Fulton says, none of you will be waiting on Sharpay. You'll be serving Miss Evans. And I think it's kind of weird that Chad would have asked Mr. Fulton that because... I mean, I guess there's a chance they get, you know, assigned a specific group of tables that they're always, you know, serving and that Sharpay and her family would always be sitting at the same table. But that seems like the kind of thing that could be handled internally, like, all right, you serve her Monday, I'll serve Tuesday or whatever. And that you don't have to go to Mr. Fulton with. But anyway, Mr. Fulton's like, oh, I don't want to hear this just childish talk. He doesn't say that, but that's what he means. And when, when he says, you'll be serving Miss Evans, Jason says, who's that? Because he's dumb. And Mr. Fulton starts teaching Jason about, oh, you gotta address our members, you know, not by first name, like Mr. Mrs. or Miss. Hmm. No mucks. Okay, whatever. No non-gendered prefixes. Sure, whatever. Mr. Fulton's like, all right, let's practice. Miss Evans, would you care for lemonade? And Jason is like, actually, I'm not Miss Evans. I'm Jason. Which is very Disney Channel sitcom-y. Which is perfectly fine for a decom and short burst, very small bursts sprinkled in throughout the movie, such as this one from Ryan Sanborn playing Jason. And I really like how there are 
cringes all around the room like, Jason, come on, you're embarrassing us and our entire school. Then Gabriella runs in. Gabriella runs in during this moment of heat attention and says, it smells so good. I'm so hungry. And Mr. Fulton is like right away like, Miss Montez, your lunch break doesn't start for another 3.5 minutes. I hope no one drowned in your absence. I personally would like to assume the lifeguard doing the next shift showed up a couple minutes early and was like, I'll take it from here. You can go. You've already saved someone this morning. I'll take it from here. Go on your lunch break. I'll fill your 3.5 minutes. But Gabriella was too nervous to explain that to Mr. Fulton in the moment. No, 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 no. Let next lifeguard, they're there. They showed up and they've got it covered. Don't worry. And she was just kind of frozen like, oh, the boss is mad at me. Because I, there's no way Gabriella just left her lifeguarding post unaccompanied with people in the pool. It's because that would be extremely irresponsible and Gabriella would never do that. Especially on her first day. So now everyone's super nervous and afraid of Mr. Fulton being like, Three infractions of any kind and your employment is terminated. And they're all like, oh, this is terrible. This is absolute torture having a job with a mean boss. And Chad's like, I'm kind of missed attention. And Troy, being, you know, Mr. Optimistic Man, start, tries to, you know, let's look at the bright side of things, leading it to work this out, of course. We gotta hoop out back two free meals a day, and we only have to wear these stupid outfits on duty. People make fun of this song, work this out, because these jobs are, quote-unquote, not that bad. And Mr. Fulton is, quote-unquote, not that mean. Which, in a capitalist context, is 100% correct. But you see, their, their icky feelings of being at work are 100% justified. Having your labor exploited for the gain of others is not a, a, a natural experience that they should be totally okay with in the depths of their soul. The that comes off as, like, you know, this childlike innocence of being like, oh, work, it's terrible. Ew, I don't like work. That innocence of not wanting to be miserable at work is good and cause for hope and celebration that they're not just giving into it right away. How did we get from the top of the world to the bottom of the heap? I just want to ask, uh, Chad, when were you ever at the top of the world? Was it after your basketball team won the championship? Well, all right. If that's your, you know, if that's your, your measure of where what it means to be at the top of the world, fine, fine. Taylor says, I don't recall you mentioning the boss was such a creep. And wait, actually, wait, 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 wait. Let me check something. Let me check something. Because I don't know if this is just the Mandela effect, but I can kind of envision when Mr. Fulton goes over to Taylor to be like, I heard you're efficient. Prove it. I have this kind of a recollection that he like touches her on the shoulder or something, which is definitely something that shouldn't necessarily be done, especially without consent to a new teenage employee. So let me just pull that up right now and see if that is what happens. Never mind. Never mind. He doesn't touch her on the shoulder. He doesn't touch her at all. He just hands her a clipboard. But I think what Taylor might be referencing here is when Mr. Fulton kind of looks her in the eyes and like, you know, does those two eye things. Like I got my eyes on you, but like the two eyes connecting sort of thing where he's like, keep me briefed at all times, which could definitely be described as creepish behavior. And the big thing, the big thing here, that I want to point out and work this out and this, you know, frustration with having to work for someone is that their anger is misplaced. That's really the only thing. They're just misplaced on Mr. Fulton instead of on the people who are actually benefiting and getting all the wealth off of the country club, which is the Evans family. That does end up changing throughout the movie, of course, but at the beginning, this first step of like, hmm, I don't quite like this. Their anger is misplaced on their boss instead of the, the true, you know, higher up 
CEO type of people. We still have the ingredients to make the summer sweet. And Chad pinches Zeke's ear. This is this is uh this song is the first time that Taylor, Kelsey, and Jason get any singing lines like solo singing lines because uh, Zeke and Martha had in movie one in Status Quo. Uh, but also there are eight of the ten main kids here singing prominently, singing like their own lines here with only Sharpay and Ryan missing, and it's only topped by A Night to Remember in Musical 3, where all ten of them get their own line. Very interesting. So this is a non-diegetic musical number, but it kind of feels diegetic in some ways by the expressiveness of all the characters. And, you know, the in the dancing, too, especially in Troy's dancing. Because, like, in the first verse, while everyone's kind of, you know, getting up in his face, you can see him thinking hard to himself, like, hmm, what must I do to get these people back on board. Ah, I know. I see. I must dance with steel in my eyes. That is the way. A lot of people misinterpret the song as instead of work this out, they think of it as suck it up. We've got to suck, suck, suck it up to make some money and survive 2020. Nope. This is work, work, work this out. Make things right. The sun will shine implying that there is a problem at hand that they will solve, which is their working conditions, and that they're getting their labor value stolen. They'll work in the meantime to survive while they work this out and make things right and make the sunshine. Notice the um the, the reactions of the other characters as soon as Troy starts to dance. Jason Jason's not in there. He's out of the picture, actually. But And also Kelsey's kind of hidden by Gabriella. But the other five are like chef's kiss material. Taylor appears to be, like, kind of judging Troy personally. Zeke is trying to hide the fact that he's super into it. Martha is heartily impressed and actually joins him in, joins in with him for a second near the end of the, the course. Chad actually rolls his eyes in disgust. And Gabriella, of course, is hopelessly in love. How would you react if you were under these circumstances? I think these are all relatable and appropriate reactions to the situation at hand. And uh, I'm not a fan at all of the, the tag-yourself meme, but... This scene is as appropriate as any, I think, to use in that situation. Come on, man, we can totally turn this thing around. And Chad is like, I'd rather face a seven-footer straight up in the post. Oh, oh no, a nightmare getting outmatched in a basketball game. So basically, you know what we're learning from Chad here, at least right at the beginning, or in his initial mindset, which he will grow from, is that he would rather accept miserable circumstances than fight for better circumstances. Because Troy's like, let's try to turn this thing around and improve what we're going through right now. Chad is like, no, optimism, don't like it. And they have these lines about, you know, burning someone's toast and I need to band your mans and fix this greasy mess and all these things, right? Very nice imagery going on in these lines, these very, you know, short snippets. And now we see, we kind of see, because uh, besides his little bit and what time is it, this is the first time we really see a, a song that features Zac Efron's singing heavily because of course drew Seeley sang for him in musical one and we can kind of see where he goes face tougher problems than this we can kind of see why Seeley sang for him in musical one because he's you know still there's a lot of rawness there he's really scraping the top with the face and kind of stumbles a bit on the way down tougher problems than this second chorus now most of the other employees have joined in because you know of course the choreography is very meticulous and thought out we would expect nothing less, with Troy only dancing by himself in the first verse, then some others join him in verse two, including Chad, actually, but Chad changes his mind halfway through and stops dancing and, like, shoves Troy a bit. And then, of course, when we get to the final chorus, everyone will be totally on board. But before we get to that, 
we have an iconic, and I do not use that word lightly. I save it for very special moments. Iconic kitchen percussion that unironically slaps and sounds amazing and begins with a great example of Zac Efron owning the role of Troy as well as he's ever done, shouting, let's work it. It's high energy. Boop, 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 boop. Troy's hitting the pots and pans with the wooden sticks. High energy. So much youthful enthusiasm. And I love how Troy, you know, when he's hitting, you know, the like the pots and pans that he's like experimenting with the different pitches that the appliances make, trying to figure out probably like how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb or something. And one of the feature dancers hits two lids together with tremendous attitude. And then here is the uh, the main thing everyone remembers from the sequence is everyone in the room shutting up while Gabriella uses some spoons to play a touch record of a major scale on the wine glasses. Da-da-ding, ding, ding, right? You know what I'm talking about, of course. Very minor detail on how Vanessa Hudgens' smile as she's playing the touch record on the glasses, like, gradually, in the span of a few seconds, grows. It's obviously it's very quick, because it's like two seconds long, but it, it feels like, like a, a, a linear growth of, like, moderate happiness to incredible pride in playing on the little glasses and a lot of people probably wouldn't have noticed this but the tetrachord gabriella plays is not in the same key as the actual song which i'm very happy about and i think you know even if you aren't as that well versed in music theory that does have an effect on you as you realize like hmm, that didn't sound quite perfect that didn't sound quite like it fits in perfectly and there's this rejection of perfection Oh, look at me. More rhymes. It's been a while since I've had a rhyme like that. The rejection of perfection. It's definitely a positive attribute of work this out for sure. And Taylor comes blasting through these these like uh, red and blue strings hanging from the ceiling for some reason. Cookie sheets. Salt shakers. Chad trying to concuss himself with some pans. But in what is a much more sophisticated choice than you would expect from this movie, the kitchen percussion does not stop when the singing starts again, Troy and Gabriella starts singing again, it continues. And it's the musical foundation of what is the definitely the coolest part of the song, where they're going, you know, tell me what you want, tell me what you need, that whole sequence. The kitchen percussion doesn't stop at all. And of course, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of butter, when Martha drops in an entire stick of butter, a little bit of sugar, an entire stick of butter, it's the perfect recipe. This is the part of the song in which everyone remembers that they're going to get paid, and they're suddenly happy again. Payday! And then Jason, Martha, Zeke, Kelsey, Chad, and Taylor each get one fast line in a row explaining how they're going to spend their money. I'll be honest, I'll be honest here. This this sequence here, it is cool, but it does definitely, you know, test my analysis of that, oh, they're really trying to work past the problem, or are they just going to be like, well, yeah, we just got to suck it up, suck, suck, suck it up and wait for payday and get your money and then and then use it to contribute more to consumerist culture. And I forgive that because it's a process. It's a learning process. And a lot of times they'll use songs to move stories forward, either extremely slowly. They'll just slow it down and to use the three minute song to capture one moment. Or they'll use a song to speed up the story and be like, oh, we'll quicken 15 minutes of content into a three-minute song. And here, it's a great balance and work this out because the progress is being made way where everyone except Troy is at the start of the song like, oh man, I think we should just quit the job and forget about it. And by the end of the song, they're like, yeah, we, we changed our minds. We're going to stay and we're going to work it out. 
And the other thing that kind of stays stagnant is the fact that they haven't really put their finger on the root of the problem yet. They're still their anger is still placed on Mr. Fulton instead of the Evans family. And that's the big shift that comes later on in the movie that obviously isn't covered and work this out. So the fact that that anger is still placed in the wrong spot on Mr. Fulton it does does make a lot of sense that they're still talking about things like you know, buy going to the mall and going to basketball games and stuff. There's a there's a phenomenal behind the scenes video of work this out of like the dance rehearsals that I think really puts Kenny Ortega's genius on display. The uh, the one moment in the video that always makes me smile is when he points at Vanessa and says, "I think she should do the tinkle glasses." But besides that, uh, the video is a great reminder that. Basically, everything you see here, it, co- it comes from Kenny's imagination. And the other two choreographers, too, Bonnie Story and Charles Kaplow. But Work This Out specifically is mostly Kenny. At least, that's what I can tell from the video. And he manages, as great directors tend to do, to take the image in his head and put it into words and communicate it to these actors and bring it to life and make it happen. Because their every movement was basically diagrammed methodically meticulously by Kenny. It's remarkable stuff. So first you have Jason cutting across diagonally from the back left of the screen to the front right, playing with an imaginary camera, singing, gonna make some motion pictures. And you know what this means? This means Jason is into filmmaking. They never touch on this again, how Jason's into filmmaking and he wants to make some motion pictures. And I've heavily considered at certain points Writing a spin-off story about Jason going to film school and like struggling in the film industry. I haven't really gotten around to it yet, but I want to. I want to. And I'll call it gonna make some motion pictures. Anyway, then we get Martha cutting across diagonally from the back right to the front left, with four other girls behind her forming like a a, a flying V. Hit them all with all my sisters. And she's got her arms out like she's championing the world. Now Zeke, more or less taking the same Jason now, they're alternating crossing in front of each other like an X. Jason from the back left to the front right. Martha from the back right to the front left. Zeke is t- taking the Jason route again, saying, get tickets to the Nixon Sixers. Which is weird since he lives in Albuquerque that he's really going to fly all the way to either Philadelphia or New York to watch a basketball game. Strange, strange. I don't know. All right. Anyway, then uh, Queen Kelsey follows Martha's route, of course, from the back right to the front left, saying, kick it with the music, Mixers. And she's got, you know, that that wiki wiki dj stuff going on that seems to appear a couple times throughout this movie and as we can see kelsey plans on buying equipment to help make her music even better if that's even possible next at the perfect speed some guy pushes a cart across the kitchen from the audience's left to their right like screen left screen right i guess is the the term for it this isn't just any cart chad and taylor are sitting on top of it and chad is pretending to be driving it because of course he wants to I ride that suits my style and he's saving up for a car is like his his thread in the movie and taylor says lounge around the pool in a while you know watching the behind the scenes for this song that i kind of just mentioned it's it shines a whole new light on how chaotic this moment really is all the dances all the movement the wheelie cart the crossovers the the navigation and organization of of bodies in such a, a high density space it's it's, it can be hard to appreciate when you've seen it so many times. And it's amazing how Ortega is able to to picture all of that in his mind and then make it work. Leading into the final course, Troy decides that he'll be spending his hard-earned cash to 
make a date with my favorite girl, and then some maniac goes goes hand crazy on a trash can. I think he's trying to drum. Uh, you you don't hear it on the soundtrack, thankfully, because it's really very loud in the movie. Just banging on that metal trash can. Cue the key change. Everyone's dancing. It's awesome. Troy's got everyone on board. Work, work, work this out. They're all doing their dance all together. Alicia Rulin, actually, who plays Kelsey, spins a beat before she should, but you can't see it really that well because she's hidden so well by Corbin Blue's large hair. And they just left it in. They just left it in. Fun little quirk. And the song ends. Gotta work this. We can work this out. Boom, boom, boom. And that, that last dun, 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 kind of, you know, metallic. And it isn't on the soundtrack, which is weird. Very weird that they cut that off the soundtrack because it's so much better with that extra dun, dun, dun. And I can understand having small changes between the soundtrack and the movie because you want to provide different experiences. You want to make it as different as possible to listen to the soundtrack and watch the movie. You don't want them to be like the exact same thing. But man, that one just felt like so integral to the song and the movie that those last three notes, dun, 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 and to take them out of the soundtrack, it just seems wrong. Seems seems like it should be against the law. Anyway, they break their poses immediately and carry on normally. And one reason I feel like this is obviously a non-diegetic song, but it feels diegetic, is because they break their poses immediately and kind of just look at each other and be like, yeah, yeah. you can really tell they're like out of breath, like, and they canonically just finished doing a song and dance. And it doesn't feel like they're ignoring the fact that a song just happened. And Troy's like, can we work this out? And Chad's like, yeah, we can work it out. I, I wonder why everyone's so relieved that Chad is, is like, yeah, we can work it out. Because if Chad really wanted to quit, like that doesn't that shouldn't really affect you that much. Like You can stay working. But anyway, Mr. Fulton walks in, walks back in from wherever he was. And Troy writes, let's go on a little note. And they, they get off to work. So now it's the next scene. Later that day, the next day, the next week. Who's to say? Who's to say? Gabriella is, you know, carrying dirty towels into the, the kitchen and putting them into the laundry bucket and scanning her card, doing all these mundane work things. Very slice of life right there. And most people wouldn't describe High School Musical 2 as a slice of life movie, but they have aspects. They have aspects. They dabble. And Troy sees her, and I guess it's lunchtime. And he is like, ever been to a golf course? And she's like, I don't play golf. And he's like, who said anything about golf? So basically, Troy is taking Gabriella out to the golf course to have a picnic. And he knows it's against the rules. They both know it's against the rules because Gabriella said, are you sure it's okay for us to be out here? And Troy doesn't say, yeah, it's fine. He says, yeah, as long as the jackrabbits don't turn us in. Acknowledging the fact that if someone saw them and turned them in, they'd be in trouble. So the only reason it's okay for them to be out here, according to Troy, is that there's a very small chance that they get caught. But this scene is a fan favorite. And I can see why. There's this there's a there's a genuine energy to the conversation. Talking like, oh house kitchen duty. Oh, you know, blah blah blah. blah. College applications, blah 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 blah. Frightening concept of our future, blah 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 blah. And Troy says, Oh, you know, my parents are saving pennies. College costs a fortune. My parents have, are saving pennies, unlike the people at this place. And Gabrielle says, You're a cinch for a scholarship, Troy. Cinch? I do not know what that word means. And I looked it up because I didn't know what it meant, and I still barely know what it means. The closest I think that I can come, I feel like either way, it's the wrong word to use in a sentence because it says you have a, a tight grip on something, you have a cinch on something. So I think what Gabriella meant to say is you have a cinch on a scholarship, 
and not your ascent for a scholarship. But anyway, Troy's anxious because he's like, oh, you know, scholars, no guarantees, especially, you know, basketball scholarships, you know. And he says, he has this very important line that I've actually written in bold here. I've always liked the idea of being in charge of my future until it actually started happening. And this is is very indicative of how throughout the movie he kind of starts passing off the responsibilities of his future and slowly you know when the evans family starts to like offer him stuff he's like yeah, yeah all right you're, you take it you be in charge you lead the way for me you hand stuff over to me but gabrielle you know they they move away from that topic pretty quickly and she's like oh i'm just glad to be here with and he says here we go he says an outstanding peanut butter and jelly sandwich maker like me um, you might know this, of course, how Miley Cyrus, you know, makes that, that, uh, that brief cameo at the end of the movie, how they had a bunch of like on DisneyChannel.com, a bunch of polls and stuff for like high school musical Two, like fans, you get to decide what is in the movie. And the big thing that got all the attention was which Hannah Montana star is going to make a cameo appearance. And Miley Cyrus, Emily Osment, Jason Earls, Billy Ray Cyrus. I don't know if Mitchell Musso was one of the options. Miley won. Not a big surprise. Billy Ray Cyrus winning would have been extremely cool. One of the other things that fans got to vote on was what sandwich should Troy make for Gabriella at the picnic? And the peanut butter and jelly was the option that won. I have no idea what the other options were. I obviously didn't know about these polls as they were happening. I didn't learn about them until like a year ago at the most. And I don't remember what any of the other questions were. Fun little tidbit. Then they start, you know, the grape toss game. Like, oh, try to catch one in your mouth. Oh, so much fun. And Gabrielle, you know, and throws one to Troy, and he catches it, and then Troy throws three, and she doesn't catch any of them. <laughs> so goofy. And Sharpay and Ryan are spying on them. It's binoculars Sharpay has. And it's really, it's mostly Sharpay doing the spying, and Ryan's just kind of vibing, going with the flow, as he does, not being confrontational. And Sharpay gets, uh, I think, a walkie-talkie, actually, and is like, Fulton, I was on the fourth fairway today. Seemed a little bone dry. Want to give it a splash? Read into that language what you will. But then we cut right back to Gabriella piggybacking around on Troy. They almost kiss. The sprinklers go on. That's, by the way, for those of you keeping count, the third almost kiss of this movie. And they start running through the sprinklers as Troy yells, You are going to get so wet. Leaving absolutely no doubt that this is the Disney Channel's equivalent of a sex scene. Bone dry. Give it a splash. You are going to get so wet. Mr. Fulton catches them. Not having sex. I assume that he catches them after the fact. Hopefully. Metaphorically speaking, of course. And he says, we are not off to an auspicious start. Are we, Miss Montez? And basically, Gabriella gets in trouble, but Troy doesn't. He can't have Troy have a bad time. And, you know, push him to want to leave. He can only make Gabriella's life miserable and everyone else that isn't Troy. So when Troy says, actually, this was my idea, he says, how gallant, but irrelevant. And this is an example, just like we had in Musical 1, with Troy calling Gabrielle in homeroom and getting Gabrielle detention immediately on the first day of school. Now Troy convinces Gabrielle to come picnic on a golf course, and now she's in trouble first day on, or I don't know if it's the first day, but early on in her tenure here at Lava Springs, and Gabrielle is not mad at Troy at all for getting her in trouble like that. But anyway, we flash away to a commercial break. Because remember, this is a TV movie where we have commercials. And now it's the, the next morning, we think. Troy and Gabriella walk into the kitchen the next morning, holding hands and, 
and ha- and just having a great time. And then they walk towards Kelsey because they hear her playing playing a song on the piano. And they decide to walk towards her in this this back music room kind of, which is also I can't tell if it's I think it really kind of is the dining hall, but I can't really tell. There's a lot of confusing stuff with setting. And it's a lot of times hard to tell where they are. Have they been here before in this scene, in this movie? But Gabriella walks straight in with Troy and says, Sounded good, Kels. I would have had a heart attack if I was Kelsey. I'm just, they're minding my own business, playing the piano, singing to myself. They walk in and say, Sounded good, Kels. I'd be, holy shit. Please knock before you come in. But Kelsey's like, hey, thanks. She doesn't seem to mind. And she's, you know, she's, just, she's having a good time-ish, you know, writing songs. She's like, yeah, I've got to get ready for the ladies' luncheon. Play piano there. Won't exactly be rocking out. Ha, 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 ha. But what she's excited for, not the ladies' luncheon, is the talent show. The Midsummer Night's talent show. Because the employees get to do a number. And she says, you two, Troy and Gabrielle, you sing the lead. But Troy doesn't want to. I want to point out here, Kelsey also says here, you can sing the lead. Chad and Zeke can sing backup. And everyone can dance. I thought... It was canon that Chad hates to sing and hates musicals. Obviously, you know, he sings, he takes part in non-diegetic songs all the time in all three movies. But I thought the actual character of Chad didn't like musical theater and stuff and stuff. But the fact that Kelsey is like, Chad Zeke will sing backup leads me to believe that Chad had a change of heart at some point between the end of musical one and now, possibly while Troy was going in rehearsals for the winter musical and chad was like oh shut up he's like oh you know this is kind of fun and now he's like following in troy's footsteps a bit and being like yeah now that troy is dog into his music his love for music i can do the same thing too but troy doesn't want to sing <laughs> by the way in the talent show because he's like you know the uh, i think the musical the winter musical i think that was it for me then kelsey after gabriella asks her to starts playing that song she was just working on a minute ago, which is You Are the Music and Me, which is the best song in musical too. At this moment, right before the song starts, is Gabriella putting her full faith in Kelsey because she, you can kind of tell, does want to sing with Troy at this talent show, does want to sing with him. And she's putting her full faith in the fact that, okay, if Troy hears this song, He's going to change his mind because Kelsey's songs are always amazing and Troy's going to hear how amazing it is and want to sing it. And she was absolutely correct. Lemonade Mouth as a movie is very reminiscent of this scene in that someone's like, oh, I don't want to do music anymore. I'm, I'm over it. And then one person starts playing and singing or something. And then they have a semi-diegetic musical number and they're all in. Think of somebody from Lemonade Mouth. When, when Mo and Charlie are like, oh, it's not working. I want to leave the band. And when it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da on the keyboard out of nowhere. And I say semi-diegetic because it's very hard to get a hold on that. I talked about that in my Lemonade Mouth episode a lot. And then I came to the conclusion that the Lemonade is magic. But what happens there is it's meant to be diegetic and that they're a band practicing a song. But on the other hand, they've never played the song before. So it's not diegetic in that how do we know the song and how to play it perfectly? And You Are the Music and Me is similar in that way. How Troy and Gabriella appear to know the melody perfectly well instantly. And of course, there's the whole fact that there are many instruments we hear besides just Kelsey's piano. Now, one difference in the music, musical one to musical two, is that in the first movie, the best songs were put on display in big moment scenes. Like everyone knew status quo 
Breaking Free, we're all in this together, were the big ones. The, the cream of the crop. Not only were they clearly the best songs, but they were at the most important points in the movie. Musical 2 didn't make it so obvious. In terms of big musical moments, the closest we come, I guess, is every day. You know, actually, wait. Before I finish this point, maybe actually musical one they aren't actually the big moments except breaking free which is of course you know the, the climax of the movie maybe status quo and we're all this together are only the big movie moments because they are the best songs i think that actually now that i mentioned that that does seem to make more sense and i think the really the big difference that i'm trying to talk about here is that musical one those three songs were clearly head and shoulders of the, above the rest there was a lot of disparity on the soundtrack of musical one three amazing songs a couple that were, you know, start us something new, bop to the top, what I've been looking for, that were pretty good, that were okay, and then get your head in the game, and when there was me and you, were a clear tier below everything else. And in Musical 2, there's a lot more parody in the songs, and it's a lot harder to find the songs that really stand out and separate themselves as the best. And of course, you know, everyone has preferences. I just said, I think You Are the Music in Me is the best song for Musical 2. If I had to pick a second place, it would probably be bet, be bet on it. I know that's a lot of people's favorite. But really, most songs in this movie, you can make the case for them being near the top. And that's one of the reasons, um, the, the parody of the soundtrack in Musical 2, one of the reasons why You Are the Music in Me, I think, has been able to kind of fly under the radar a bit compared to other great high school musical songs and remain so underrated. My uncompromised love and appreciation for this song is not connected to some sort of societal commentary like in stick to the status quo or some sort of shakespearean turmoil like in bet on it or a flamboyant broadway feeling like and i want it all you or the music of me doesn't really have any of that like the scene in the context of the movie it's fine it doesn't blow me away in fact i hardly prefer it to the soundtrack version the reason this song is so good is just because the song is so good it's that simple it doesn't need the scene doesn't even it doesn't need the movie it doesn't need drawing gabriella on it simply the song is that good the first 20 seconds of the song is block chords and and average singing from kelsey which i like because this is what would actually happen in this situation if gabrielle's like hey that song you were just playing can you play it again that's what would happen. She'd be like just hitting some block chords and being like, yeah, starting to get the form, the foundation, I'm kind of singing the melody, not quite to the best of my abilities, but you're getting the idea. And Gabriella joins her, but only on some of the words. When you dream, chance you'll find laughter ever after. And Shore decides to sing too, even though he was kind of, you know, looking away at the edge of the piano. Decides to sing too, but he's pretending he doesn't want to. You fucking want to. Stop playing. Stop playing. Your harmony to the melody. At this point, there's uh, the the non-diegetic instruments start to show up a little bit, but they're very quiet. Uh, Like a a shaker, you know, like a one of those. And uh, bass guitar also very quiet. Extremely minor stuff. A single voice above the noise and like a common thread, you're pulling me. That's the first verse. But it's so unassuming in terms of the singing, the instrumentation, the the, the excessive openness, that it, it feels more like an intro than a verse. So if I hadn't made it very clear, this is very, very close to the top of my favorite High School Musical songs list. I've talked a couple times before, not just in High School Musical, 
but in all the other music I've talked talked about, how a perfect song is impossible to create because in order to create a perfect musical moment, you need to set it up with an imperfect moment. The intro, not the intro, the, the first verse of this song serves as a great setup for the chorus. And the chorus isn't perfect either. It serves as a setup for the second verse, then chorus two, bridge, chorus three. Everything in the song serves as a setup for the next thing which means every moment in the song is better than the last it's it's like it's like building a tower you start at the bottom and then you you stack you know at the, and at the beginning like the first layer of your tower i'm not an architect i don't know at the beginning it's a pretty ugly tower but it keeps you keep adding layers onto your tower and it keeps growing and growing and growing and getting taller and more beautiful and elaborate and filled out if you start at the top you're not going to have a pretty tower and that's what they do when you are the music in me. They build on top of the foundation that they just put down in the, the last section of the song. So when the, the first chorus starts, the only real change is an instrumentation. Uh, they, they add in the drum set and they add in the organ. Maybe a couple other small things. Even uh, Zach and Vanessa, uh, they don't really move around that much. Like they're standing still for the whole first verse. And the first chorus, they don't really move right away either. When I hear my favorite song, I know that we belong. You are the music in me. And at the end of the first chorus, when they, you know, that, that second, you are the music in me, I want to point out, there's one instance in each movie, uh, in a song of Vanessa Hudgens doing this like bobblehead move. In the first movie, it's in Start of Something New, uh, at the end of the second verse, when she's like, this could be the, she's got a bob in her head. And here it's music in me at the end of the first verse. And the, the best one by far is in Now or Never, when Troy's going, turn it up game on and she's kind of like nodding which i'll get to that when i get to that but i wanted to point it out now and we've once again reached the the na 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 na's as i kind of mentioned last last episode any song whose memorable hook or, or calling card who, whose signature is a filler lyric shit sign me up you, you you'll always have me at na 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 or do 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 or yeah 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 or goo 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 always always but for these na 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 na's, it goes na 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 na. And then Troy goes, oh. And look at his face. Look at his face here. Find this spot in the movie. Because it's funny when he says, oh. And he has like this look on his face. And he's pointing at Kelsey's music and says, oh. It's very funny. Like, like he's uh, surprised by it. Or like he wants to, to make sure he doesn't lose his place in the song. You know, using your finger to, to keep track and stuff like that. I have a big problem with a lot of pop music. As I'm sure you kind of picked up on. And one of them is that when they start a second verse of a song, they'll circle back and do the exact same thing in verse 2 as they did in verse 1. That's, of course, not what's going on here. Because verse 2 is nothing like verse 1. Not here because of how how I, I kind of describe verse 1 as soft and unassuming and open. Verse 1 was. And verse 2 is a whole new deal. It's not a re- release of tension from the chorus, really. It's We're just stacking more bricks on our tower, building our tower up. And I want to point out here something important. Uh, Troy and Gabriella uh, don't really sing in unison in this song, especially in verse two. It's prominent. They don't really sing in unison. They're they're kind of filling in each other's gaps between the words. Call and response, sort of, except they're kind of repeating after each other a little bit. Um, I think this is kind of two things. First thing, it's a subtle nod to the fact that they they just kind of learned they just learned this song. And so they don't know it that well, and it's unpolished. So maybe they don't have the timing quite down on when the lyrics are. The other thing is that they're not singing together 
like as a performance for an audience like us. They're really singing to each other. And Troy's audience is Gabriella, and Gabriella's audience is Troy. And that's why they don't sing at the same time, or sing over each other, kind of, at the same time. So they can kind of each hear each other at once without being distracted by the words that they're saying. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to point out uh, the greatest lyrics of the song, and maybe the greatest, or near the top of the list of the best high school musical song lyrics, which is, as I am, you understand, and that's more than I've ever known, to hear your voice above the noise, and know I'm not alone. Not only are these the best words in the song, they're placed to the perfect instance. Tail end of verse 2. I'm, I'm not going to go overboard and say that You're the Music in Me is the best love song ever written. Uh, well, I might. I might. But I am going to say that I cannot think of a better line in a love song. Of like, Someone's got your back. Someone understands you. You know what? Fuck it. This is the best love song of all time. Fight me. I don't, I don't get best love song of all time. Cause, cause exactly. Okay, I'm gonna come back to it right now. Most other love songs are missing reciprocation. Sometimes we can assume reciprocation. Of course we could, but it isn't there. Point me to a love song that not only features both parties, but features them singing to each other and not with each other, and features a set of lines as good as "As I am, you understand, and that's more than I've ever known." To hear your voice above the noise and know I'm not alone. Well, I guess this really is the best love song of all time. Best love song of all time. And the song keeps growing. Keeps growing. They keep on putting more layers and bricks on their tower. And it keeps growing. Just like their relationship. Wow. Wow. Mic drop answer right there. And right before the second chorus, Gabrielle yells, Ah, sing it to me. Right, you know what I'm talking about. Obviously, she made it sound good. And the camera goes on Kelsey for a second. Right at this moment. Who's absolutely in her zone. You know, up and down, right? Awkwardly trying to physically express how glad she is. And this is her happy place. You're a songwriter. Now you're playing a song. And these two are singing it and loving it. There's there's no better feeling. And everything, you know, swells and explodes in this moment. And it isn't even really the last time. It's it's just another, another floor on the building. You know what this reminds me of? Uh, the Phineas and Ferb song, Floor After Floor. Look it up. It, it's a song, it sounds a lot like the Drake and Josh theme song, to be honest. Floor after floor, now you know what's in store. That one. And the building just keeps getting taller and taller and taller and taller. That's what you are, are the music in me is. And this second chorus is bigger and meatier than the first chorus. And Zach's doing like this weird jumpy dance when I hear my favorite song. And another instance, it feels like this is in almost every song, of just throwing in a subtle difference between the first chorus and the second chorus. Well, the harmonies are even a little different this time around. And the, the nature of the, the music, the song, the chord progression is so like sweet and playful that it, there's this kind of freedom it has to continue to swell and build and grow and swell and build and grow without ever stopping or slowing down or, or feeling like it, it gets too big or dramatic. Like, all right, time for some music theory talk here. The key is C major the whole time, but the progression for several chunks of the song is what it, a lot of times it does. It plays around on the chords B flat and F. However, the uh, as I am, you understand section and uh, the, also the adjacent uh, harmony to the melody in verse one, it follows a D minor, C, B flat, F. That's the pattern. On the D minor though, the melody lands on B, C, G. Na, na, na. As like the individual notes. For those of you who aren't as well versed in music theory, uh, none of these notes are in the D minor chord. 
So it creates a, a brief tension that's very quickly resolved with the melody pulling the progression kind of back to the C major chord. And then that's where it goes, like a second later, the melody is like, come back to C major, and then it does right away. And then the bridge starts, all right, after the second chorus, as it normally does. And one time, I think like four years ago, maybe, I listened to this song for for the first time in a long time. It had been a long time. And I forgot about this bridge. It took me off guard. And uh, I miss that feeling. I miss that feeling. Slam, 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 slam. A snare drum on every beat. Every beat. Every beat. But as, as I kind of just said, it doesn't overpower you or get too dramatic because it still focuses on fun and positive energy. And also, kind of just like in what time is it, you, you can see Troy's boxers. But anyway, I feel two ways. I feel two ways about uh, You Are The Music And Me. One of them is this song is good enough to exist without Troy and Gabriella in High School Musical. It doesn't need them to be great. And I believe that. Number two is this song, in terms of its lyrics, isn't ambiguous enough to be applied to every relationship. There are like there are multiple aspects in this song, specifically about music and singing, that are specific to Troy and Gabriella and their relationship. Because, of course, theirs is very much driven by, enhanced by music and singing together, which is not true for everyone. I don't know if you're familiar with Bo Burnham, he has a, a song called Repeat Stuff, which is talks, among other things, about how pop songs, especially like love songs, popular love songs, are designed to be vague enough to make a lot of people feel like it's about them and their life. And it can be hard for me and probably a lot of other people, too, who study this kind of thing to differentiate between that sleazy, you know, play with teenagers emotions to make them feel loved through our music. And the more authentic thing where it's like, I, as a songwriter, won't make the song too personal or too specific to me so that no one else would be able to closely relate to it. It's a, it's a balance you have to make. And it's going to be hard to judge. Like, why is this vague? Is it because you're trying to manipulate me or is it because you're trying to make something that a lot of people could more easily connect to? And I think you are the music in me does the balance very well of being like, we apply it to Troy and Gabriella. But it's not specific enough that anyone who is totally unfamiliar with the story and the characters wouldn't be able to enjoy it as much as someone who knows Troy and Gabriella extremely well. And in the bridge, when they're singing, say what we feel, and Gabriella goes, what we feel, her voice cracks a little bit. Barely at all. Then Vanessa put her, puts her hand on her heart. And I know it was totally unintentional because they're lip syncing, but it looks like she's putting her hand on her throat to help like clear the bug out of her throat because it's like right after it it doesn't really crack. I guess that's the wrong word. It kind of just, you know, there's a little phlegm in there or something, but a little bug in the throat. But overall, this is my favorite Vanessa Hudgens vocal performance from the entire series. She lets totally loose, something that it feels like she almost never does that. And it seems like she's singing out of a second neck. I'll put it that way. Like she was in like, like a trance when she recorded this song. It, it must have been. And it can happen to musicians. Uh, Ringo Starr, for example, said when he recorded the drum track on Rain, he felt like he was in a trance. Like he listened back to it after and was like, wait, that was me? I did that? And sometimes it happens where you unlock this sort of deeper musical potential that you never knew you had. And it feels like Vanessa Hudgens does that here. And she, she shouts, you know, can't keep it 
all inside at the only point in the song where they play a dominant chord the the, the five g major taylor martha jason zeke chad they heard the racket they're coming to see what was up the nana nanas are back and this is the like the sixth floor now on the building that Jordan and gabriella are are, are are building vanessa hudgens a lot of times you know i feel like with vanessa hudgens here whoever was in the studio with her that day the producers or whatever they might have realized that she was having a once in a blue moon golden day on the vocals and they really let her lead the way on this last chorus oh yeah oh yeah right all that stuff so much so that zach efron actually kind of feels like a backup singer at this point everyone else you know they picked up some sheets surrounding kelsey singing along jason's got his arms around zeke and martha oh that's so cute everyone enjoying the song together it's living in all of us it's brought us here because uh also detail you probably noticed i noticed this when i was six and i talked a lot about things i didn't notice when i was six i noticed this when i was six how blue vanessa hudson's hair is in the scene the whole time i don't i don't they didn't dye it blue it just must have been some weird lighting thing the song ends with some some spinny dancing shots of some some whack artwork on the walls in the background you see and you know what the first piece of dialogue is when the song finishes is gabrielle saying oh i love that song and troy going great job kels yes they have taste and then all together they agree to do the talent show i love that how troy and gabriella canonically love this song taylor's by the way since she's you know in charge of holding the clipboard she has to sign up sheet for the talent show they all decide to sign up kelsey's like yay and then kind of like in the first movie she goes off right away like in the first movie when miss darvis is like bolton montez you have a callback kelsey goes off like we can rehearse here we can rehearse here we can rehearse then rehearse now and a similar thing how she's like oh we're gonna make a rehearsal that goes with all our schedules and ryan was spying on them with a walkie-talkie and and he's talking to sharpay like golden throat this is jazz square so now we cut over to ryan and sharpay and their mom and both sharpay and their mom are getting like guacamole cucumber facial situations right and Sharpay starts thinking about how, oh, Troy won't be singing at the talent show with Gabriella. He'll be singing with me instead. And this is when, where her big master maniacal plan starts to be, you know, in its in its early stages. And she asks her mom, like, what time is daddy coming? And she says, we tee off at noon. Join us? Love to. So this leads into the golfing scene. The golfing scene. We cut to Troy and Chad in the kitchen, having a great time at work carrying uh dishes in to the kitchen being like bah, 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 bah. how should we get to the food today so perhaps skipping very well then yep dance forth i feel like i have the beats of that scene totally memorized and i think it's i love it that's even like there's like a level up from the things like tell pumpkin if she worries too much she'll get frown lines of like wow whose idea was it to put in bah, 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 bah. brilliant stuff and Mr. Fulton tells them, you've been requested to caddy, the two of you, for $40 a bag. Troy's like, who requested us? And apparently $40 a bag is a lot. So Chad's like, I'd caddy for Godzilla. And Mr. Fulton, of course, are close, very close. Because it was Sharpay who requested Troy and Chad specifically to caddy for them. I'm confused as to why she requested Chad and not just Troy. Maybe to guarantee that Troy would come? That Troy would feel more comfortable? I don't know. But Sharpay, of course, is setting up for Troy to meet his family and for the pampering to begin. And we'll get to that next week on Disney Channel Discourse, where we'll talk about the golf scene. We'll talk about golf as an allegory for wealth, because I spent a lot of time talking about Work This Out and You Are The Music In Me. 
I feel like I'm, I've slowed down quite a lot. Like I spent about half the last episode on High School Musical 2. And now, so I've had about one and a half episodes of High School Musical 2. And I haven't even reached Huma Huma. I haven't even reached the golf scene yet. So honestly, this series might end up being quite long because I am speaking very thoroughly. So thank you very much for listening to this week's Disney Channel Discourse. I'll be back next week, continuing High School Musical 2. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at Disney Channel Discourse, where you can send me a message if you have anything to say. 